So Brandon uh, Stanton is a photographer in uh, New York City who about five years ago decided that he was going to photograph about 10,000 New Yorkers uh, and ask them just a little bit about their story. And he started publishing these photographs with one or two short little paragraphs uh, about what, how they saw themselves. And it quickly turned into a website called the, the Humans of New York. And it really sort of blew up at that, at that point. Uh, the website sort of uh, created a series of books, many of which stayed on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Stan even got to meet with uh, President Obama as he was named one of the 30 people under 30 who were changing the world. Well, what in the world is so special about these uh, photographs? Well, if you've never stopped by the website, it really is, it's really addictive. Most because the stories are very short and easy to digest, you really do find yourself very immersed into the life of the people that you're reading about. Before long, you realize these people are just like me. I'm just like these people. And what I've been trying to argue with you this in this short summer series is that is the power of stories. A, a story brings us a framework or a grid to understand our life. Or as researcher Jonathan Adler says, stories do not simply describe reality. They frame reality for the listener. In other words, your life is nothing more than a function of the stories that you're believing about yourself or telling to yourself at any given time. And so we're concluding this little six-week series through the first three chapters of Genesis. And what I've wanted you to see is that the whole of the Bible's story is contained in these first three chapters of Genesis. In other words, you could reasonably know where all of the action in the rest of the story was going just from these opening chapters. So we began our study by suggesting that the opening of the story shows that this is actually God's story that's being told and not mine. We saw after that that the setting of the story is a supernatural universe with heaven just on the other side of my senses. We saw that the main character of the Bible are these creatures whom he created in his image. We saw the plot of the Bible story was structured around this really important word called the covenant that we'll get to in just a minute. And we found last week that these humans rebelled against God and then pulled themselves out of alignment with reality in so doing. But that would have been a disturbing place to end it, wouldn't it have? You know, will there be any resolution to this great problem that's created here? Well, if you ever make it your aim to read through the books of the Old Testament, I think you're going to find that that very question hangs over virtually every page of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. Like, can God fix this? Will he fix this? Uh, how will he do so if he even intends to? Uh, how, can we, how can God love his creatures without destroying them in the process? And of course, the hope is that like any good story, we'll begin to see that the Bible story is my story. As it comes to you, then you can come to life with it. Uh, there's a quickening that happens in people's hearts when you begin to take the Bible seriously enough that not just that you're looking into its message, but that you're actually looking to its message for the meaning that only it can give. And so in the action just thus far, you'll remember that two weeks ago we talked about this idea of a covenant or the theologians called it a covenant of works. And this was just simply this idea that God had bound himself contractually to man and promised to bless him as long as he was obedient. Well, last week, that was all completely shot. 
And so God comes and introduces a new covenant that's not just a covenant of his favor, but a covenant of his undeserved favor, literally a covenant of grace. That's what we get in these pages here. So I want to break it down in two ways. First of all, we want to see the result of the fall. And second of all, the remedy for the fall. And for those of you that are outlying people, I've got three points under each of those two big points. So we'll see how this goes. So the result of the fall, you know, for a few years, now, we sort of had a, a very helpful and I think understanding emphasis on uh, bullying as a problem among our young people. But actually, uh, there's another social ailment that's slowly taking rise that we're just noticing that's just as destructive, and that is the power of being kicked out. Uh, social scientists are starting to call it ostracism, uh, and it's being known as like the social death penalty when you're finally kicked out. I did a little research and found out that the word ostracizing, ostracism, comes from an ancient political practice in ancient Athens, where the citizens of a town or a city could actually vote together to kick someone out of their city for like up to 10 years if enough citizens expressed their desire uh, through a vote using pottery shards uh, that were known as ostracons, okay, since ostracism. And what we're finding is that the effects of being ostracized from people are pretty powerful, showing even that our brain registers the feelings of isolation in the exact same place where it shows a physical beating. In other words, it really hurts to be kicked out. And I want you to feel the sense of how this must have been emotionally for our first parents, because they were created in God's image, which means, among many other things, that they were created as a community. And this community was, was founded upon their walking with God, being in fellowship with Him. So the repercussions of God excluding them sort of led them to almost a voluntary ostracism. They start pushing away from Him. And so the word that I want to hang over the primary effect of the fall is the word alienation. And it unfolds in three relationships. They're alienation from God, alienation from each other, and alienation from their environment. Look at this real quick. You know, apparently in verse 18, it was the custom of Adam and Eve to walk with God in the afternoons. Uh, Most scholars agree that this figure uh, who appeared to them came to them in human form, uh, literally a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, appearing to Adam and Eve and walking with them. But the point was that they had intimacy there. There was fellowship. There was friendship that existed. He'd come and visit with them face to face. Um, But now, this time, something's changed. And in verse 8, it reads literally there, the Hebrew literally reads, they hid from his face. So that the first of the fruits of this rebellion is that you're cut off from God. You're cut off from the one thing that you were created to know in order to feel whole. So that the first effect of sin is to feel undone, not right. A profound sense of wrongness inside of you. And you know this is happening to Adam and Eve because they hide. They're hiding from him. Hiding from God's face is the primary result of alienation. But what does that mean? Well, I would suggest to you that when the Bible talks about hiding, it's referring to what we call guilt. Guilt will always make you hide, and I can prove it. Think about the last time. Let's let's use this morning, for instance, that there was someone in your fellowship uh, that you offended, or maybe they offended you. There's a thing between the two of you, right? And they walk into church while you're talking to someone else. How do you react to that? Don't you, isn't isn't everything inside you want to be like, oh, could you stand in between this, please? I cannot deal with this this morning. 
In other words, guilt by its nature repels. It pushes us away from each other, especially around the people we feel guilty around. I do realize it's very sort of out of fashion to say that like we should feel guilty around God. But you know, just because we don't like to talk about it, it doesn't mean that it's not still functioning on some level in our consciousness. But it means that it's pushing us further and further away from something that God is trying to communicate us that might be very powerful about that guilt and how he wants to deal with it. Why? Because we're too busy running. So the first thing we feel is alienation from God. The second thing we sense is alienation from each other. We've been touching on this theme for the last few weeks, but the the first thing that Adam says to God in verse 10 is that they really want to be around him because they are naked. And God's response, I think, has so much emotion behind it in verse 11 when he says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And you know, I, when I was doing this study for this passage, I started realizing that when I was a child, I think I read God's voice in that in just a real grumpy tone, you know, like, oh, good grief. Did you actually eat from the very thing that I told you not to? Are you that dumb? But I feel like the more I read this, I realize there's actually more, there's more emotion tinged here. And, and I started imagining sort of what I suspect is a fairly familiar scene of a family dinner table sitting around with perhaps an elementary school daughter. And let's say the family has tried everything they can to sort of encourage this daughter to make friendships with friends that will build her up and not tear her down. But on one particular evening, she just sort of bursts out over dinner and says, well, none of it really matters since I'm ugly. How would you react to that? You would probably say to yourself, who told you that you were ugly? Was this these new friends that you're with? Yeah, I'm sure it would be annoying, but don't you feel how much heartbreak there would be tinged in that emotion? I think that's what's being pictured here because the nakedness that Adam and Eve are experiencing is the Bible's way of talking about shame. In other words, Adam and Eve are no longer at home in themselves. And when you're not in home at home with yourself, you're relating to someone else from a platform of inadequacy. And that's a problem. <laughs> because when you lose your relationship to God, you lose who you are. And that loss of identity introduces insecurity and fear and anxiety, a sense of need to kind of cover up or maybe to work to show everybody how I really think I'm okay. You know, when the curse comes down to Eve and it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, it simply means that the vow to love and to cherish in marriage has turned into to rule and to dominate. That's the new normal. You know, marriage is not naturally very personal. <laughs> Most oftentimes than not, it's driven by urges of selfishness that destroy marriages. And you'll remember that they sewed these little fig leaves together to cover themselves. Um, and what I think the Bible is saying is, is that in the end, it is sin that is the cause for every dysfunction in your personal relationship. That's what's at the root here. Let's take, for instance, the issue of trust. It's a big deal in a marriage to trust one another. But if you can't trust God, it's almost impossible to trust anyone else. Because trusting God means to sort of live on behalf of his delight and his love and his approval of me. But if I don't do that, then other people become means by which I can make myself feel okay. 
You're a means to an end, not an end in itself. We don't love them. We don't serve them. We're looking for what I can get out of this. And suddenly you begin to be very choosy about the people you'll relate to. You'll connect with the people that feel like boost up your status, who make you feel good about yourself or advance your self-esteem. Why? Because we, we don't want to be around those people. What we're doing is, is we're choosing to cover up, to live with the cover. And, and the main way that you know this has infected your relationship is because you start blame shifting and you're angry all the time. <laughs> Anger and blame shifting. You know, Adam blames, blames Eve and God. <laughs> it was this woman you gave me. Good work, Adam. And Eve, of course, blames the serpent. Every, it's always somebody else's fault. This is really counterintuitive, but you know, the best way to know that you are a shallow person is that it's never your fault. Best way. <laughs> it's never your fault. You're constantly citing your circumstances. You're talking about how many opportunities you got robbed of. You can't repent of anything. And when you can't, all you're showing to the rest of the world is that you're alienated from God, and it's creating alienation from each other. So alienation from the Number three, there's alienation even from their environment, from, Christ, from the creation. Look what God says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Suddenly, our sense of place is no longer our friend. Nature is against us in this regard. Uh, Romans 8, later on, Paul will say that the whole creation groans for the redemption of the sons of man. There's an old evangelist who preached back in the late uh, 1700s named George Whitfield, who was once quoted as saying, um, the birds screech and the dogs bark at us because they know that we have a quarrel with their maker. And look, as silly as that might sound to you, the Bible simply saying that poverty, disease, death, natural disasters, wars, crimes, sexism, depression, bitterness, they all come from being kicked out. We're out of our environment, and it's hard to feel at home, even in my physical body. Forget my spirit. Even physically, it's hard for me to get comfortable even in this space. The point, I don't think it's stressed enough in Christian circles. Your environment matters deeply. And if you don't believe me, just come to move-in day and help Al Bell get some people moved in this weekend. I was supposed to announce that beforehand, Al, so you get a commercial during the sermon. You're welcome. Al's going to help everybody move in for moving day. There's some folks from the church that are helping. Y'all sign up and let them know that you can help out with moving day. But I've talked to a lot of parents over the years about their freshmen's depression. I just feel like they're depressed, what they're going through. And I'm like, well, I don't know. We locked them into a cinder block cell uh, with someone who's a virtual stranger. Uh, maybe that has something to do with it. It's hard to feel like you're at home. Um, not having a sense of place can be devastating. It also kind of reminds me of um, Kurt and I just a couple of weeks ago got a chance to have a uh, lunch with a couple of guys who are working to eradicate homelessness from small Mississippi towns. Uh, homelessness is a terrible plague because God made us to dwell in perfection and in harmony with our environment. Why else do you take exotic vacations or at least long to? <laughs> Isn't that just a simple, uh, an echo that we want something that we've lost? to be at home, to be at peace in my place. So alienation from God, alienation from each other, and alienation from my environment, that's the result of the fall. But secondly, what I want to look at is the remedy for the fall, because it's all right here in Genesis chapter 3. 
And I realize that people get very sick of uh, Christianity's negativity. Man, can't you guys like be positive just once and say, oh, he's talking about the bad news? And honestly, I feel you on that. And sometimes we are at fault on that one. But I do think there's, a, there's some help in knowing that unless you know the, the depth of your problem, you're not going to feel the relief of the cure. Uh, the illustration I heard years ago was about um, what would happen if I came up to you this morning and told you that I had paid one of your bills, but I didn't tell you which bill that I paid. Do you recognize that like the register of joy that you would have at finding out the bill was paid is kind of dependent on the bill, right? I mean, if I, if I paid back the 10 bucks that you owed a friend, you'd be like, well, isn't that friendly? Thank you. If I paid off your house note, you might be a little more excited about that. In other words, until I know the size of the debt, the knowledge that it was paid doesn't register with joy in me. I think this is a little bit about what's behind people's often characterizing our biggest spiritual problem as the problem of head knowledge and heart knowledge. Well, you know, less you know it all, you just don't feel it. And so we start craving in our Christian circles having a, an experience of dynamic worship. But look, I'm, I'm all for dynamic, energetic worship. I really am. To God that we would be more energetic on Sunday mornings. But sometimes I wonder if God doesn't be like, before we get to that, you may have to have a dynamic experience with your sin before, any of that, before you've got something to be excited about. So the remedy has to come and follow the, the, the cure. But God's going to spend the next 65 books of the Bible unpacking what he unpacks here in three simple ideas. Number one, the first remedy you get to the fall is God's initiative. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. <laughs> Why does he say he has to do it? Well, because Adam and Eve have struck an alliance with the devil. That's why. And they have, by their actions, sort of pledged their allegiance to his temptation to view the world as if it's theirs to determine what's right and wrong. In other words, they have voluntarily submitted themselves to bondage. And only the Lord can break it. If these creatures are to be redeemed, it's only going to happen through a sovereign move of God into their lives to make it happen. Now look, at this point I think it's important to note a rather quirky feature of the tradition that this church stands upon theologically. Here in this church, we affirm, along with so many other doctrinal confessions of the coming out of the Reformation, that if anybody is a Christian, it was the product of God's initiative, not your free will. <laughs> and I realize the battles aren't quite as hot as they used to be back in the day, but it's still a hard pill to swallow for people when they first hear it, that they're not a Christian because they decided to be a Christian. <laughs> That can be hard to swallow. What about free will? What about man's responsibility? And I, honestly, I think those are solid questions that the Bible has good answers to. Things that we'll get to actually in the next six to eight months in our study here. But if you're wrestling through these kind of things, can I simply make a, a slightly different appeal for a way to look at it? Uh, quite frankly, Reformed people get kind of excited about these, this doctrine as soon as they hear it. And there's a good reason why. It's because for all the controversy that surrounds the doctrine of predestination, the P word, <laughs> at the heart of it all, or at least what ought to be at the heart of that whole thing, is the delight in knowing that he came and got me. I was lost. <laughs> I couldn't find my way home. I was kicked out, but he found me and he brought me back in by a new way. Think of it this way. You know, when you, when you got married, 
it was both of you that made vows to each other, didn't you? In that sense, the, the contract between you is what we would call bilateral. It had two parties agreeing to a certain uh, uh, agreement. But y'all, this new covenant that God is forging, since the old one got all messed up last week, the terms are now different. And a bilateral covenant no more. It's actually a unilateral covenant. God acting completely on his own because one party has to act on behalf of the other. Man, we are zeroed in on the, on the capital G good news here. And it's the good news of the covenant of grace is just this. God initiates the relationship. And not only that, he supplies the fulfillment of the conditions of the contract. Not only for his side, but our side as well. He's like, look, you're incapable of fixing this. So not only am I going to keep my side of the promise of absolutely punishing sin, I'm going to keep your side of the promise by absorbing the very punishment for that sin. (laughs) And everybody got excited, right? The only thing that you contribute to the covenant of grace is your sin, the mess that you've made. And people got excited about it. Which leads me to one quick application before we finish here. How do you talk about being a Christian? I realize that when preacher types ask you that question, like, oh, here it goes. He's going to ask me to get the right answer. Don't answer. Don't say anything. And I realize it's kind of a gotcha question, but I don't think it should be too much to ask. That if someone came to you and said, hey, so, so like, what are the requirements for being a Christian? And like, why do you think you've met those requirements? I don't think it's too much to ask that somewhere in that discussion, a statement about, I'm helpless and he's all sufficient, should maybe appear somewhere in there. But see, what oftentimes happens when we get asked questions like that, we whip out that spiritual resume, baby. We're like, well, I've been a deacon since I was in my 30s, Bible studies, quiet times, youth group. We've got a long list of things that we start scrambling together. And do you hear what that sounds like? That, it sounds like sufficiency. I made this happen. I'm the one that did this. Look, can you call up that feeling that you had as a child when you suddenly realized that the leg you were standing about was not mama? And you were like, oh, who is that? But then the relief when finally she came rushing up to you and be like, stay close to me. That's what I think the Bible's talking about when we talk about salvation. I woke up one day and was like, where am I? And suddenly he found me. But because he was looking, not because I did something, and jumped through some hoop, was his initiative on my behalf. Secondly, there's not only God's initiative, but God's discipline. There's a very brief mention. In verse 16, God looks at Eve and says, I am going to greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Oh, thanks for that. That'd be great. Um, Oh, and men, by the way, the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles. Like, why does God suddenly do this? Why would he suddenly add insult to injury? Well, it is crucially important that we see that the overarching purpose of the cursings that these men, that, that Adam and Eve have to face, are trying to drive them back to the only place where they can have wholeness again. Which really is a very radical reframing of the difficulty that we feel in the Christian life. When you face your life's disappointments and the pains that come in, how often does it feel like punishment? What did I do? (laughs) God, why is this happening to me? I must have done something. But here's the deal. In Christianity, there's no way that the pain of life can be punishment. 
it's always surgery, but not punishment. God is saying, look, I'm allowing these things to be there that are going to ultimately result in your good. There's a good result that's coming from this, not evil. Which brings me to the third and last thing, and that is God's covering. You see, God's initiative, God's discipline, and thirdly, God's covering. You know, verse 21 is a little simple verse, but man, is it packed with meaning. The Lord God made garments of skin. You know, we mentioned last week how silly Adam and Eve must have looked in their little leaf clothes. <laughs> and of course, I mentioned last week that those leaf clothes are just, that's just the thing that dominates your life that helps you make sense of it. That's where your perfectionism comes from. That's what your, 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 your workaholism is. It's leaf covering or, 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 or a constant need for approval from others. But God comes and covers their shame. He provides them a cover. How? By using an animal skin. Now that's interesting. Where would he have gotten that? And suddenly you begin to realize that in order for Adam and Eve to adequately have their shame covered, something's got to die. Something has to shed its blood in order for them to have that covering. So look, Genesis 3 is like this giant arrow. (laughs) It's the first pointer you get in the Bible of saying, something is coming with God's plans to redeem a rebellious people to himself. Continuously rebellious people to himself. And you know the only way it's going to happen is if somebody dies. So the whole Bible is about this question of how is he going to do this? And verse 21 gives us a foreshadowing of that skin, but there's another one there in verse 24 about the flaming sword. Come on, teenage boys. Like we had to talk about the flaming sword. That's cool. It's a flaming sword protecting Eden from all these people coming in. But what's fascinating about that is, is you got to see what that sword was about kind of in the rest of the Bible. You know, years later, they would, they would create a little a tent that we're going to talk about this fall called a tabernacle. And back in the back of the thing was a, was a place where God was. But there's all kinds of things separating you from that. You got an altar, which was a place of death. You had a big old curtain that separated you. And decorated on the curtains were angels, terebin, that guarded the way to God's presence. So what God was saying through all that imagery was eventually the sword has got to fall. The flaming sword has got to fall. Who's it going to fall on? Where's it going to happen And so every Christian expresses this as their hope that there was another that was cast out and stripped naked in the dark on my behalf. He took the sword, he took the nails. And when Jesus did that, he suddenly launched this great process of reversing the effects of the fall. Or, as we say here at Christ Pres, a great healing started. You know, and the Pevensey daughters are sitting with Aslan after he has been resurrected from the dead and watch the stone table, which is Lewis's view of the law, crack in two. They look at him and they're like, why did this have to happen? And his response is fantastic. He says, you know, the witch knew that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's it. Death is working backwards because of what started in Genesis chapter three, death starts working backwards. That is every Christian's mission. And that death starts working backwards beginning in our hearts. It goes on to our marriages, to our households, to our businesses and our neighborhoods, our corporations, our governments, our nations. 
They're all working backwards whenever God's people show up in their midst. And and for all practical purposes, it looks like Adam got it. (laughs) Because he looks at Eve and he calls her Eve. He says Eve, recognizing that God's going to bring the living one from her. He believes God's word and accepts his interpretation of life. So there you have it. The story of the Bible. And so I just want to finish with asking you the same question we did when I started this thing six weeks ago. When someone asks you, what is your story? What, do you, what will you say? And, and, and even, actually, almost especially, if you find yourself this morning on the outside of Christianity, which you've come exactly to the right place, by the way, can you at least admit that there's something beautiful about the way the Christian frames life around them? And my question for you simply is this, what if that story's true? What if it's true? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you work through all of the incrustations around our thinking about the gospel and show us the clear-headedness that you were doing this from the very beginning. And we stand in that great tradition here in Oxford, Mississippi, in North Mississippi. Father, thank you for revealing this to us, but we pray for all of those for whom this might even be the first time that things have come home to them. Would you draw them to yourself and give us a voice to be able to sing in the way in which you would have us to do so. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.